Okay, there's at least another thumb. That makes a, uh, a thumb and a half, because one of the thumbs is more powerful than the other thumb. So we can't say two thumbs. Uh, before I start the lecture, I just want to throw this in really fast. Um, and I won't say much about it today, but I will eventually. Let me read this. This is brought to me by Bill the Cow through, through uh, Lori. Christians must unhitch Old Testament from their faith, says Andy Stanley. <sighs> Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament, he says. Let me read a few other points that he might have. Uh, Gentile converts do not need to strictly observe Jewish law to become Christians. That's true. Uh, but he, he misunderstands what Jewish law is. It is a picture of Christ. Every single page of your Old Testament is a picture of Christ. To throw out the Old Testament, you throw out countless portraits of Christ. For, for Andy Stanley, the difficulty lay with the Old Testament and his concerns that many Christians are turning away from the faith because of certain passages in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible... My goodness, they're both, the whole, the New Testament is also Hebrew Bible. And, and again, to just beat the point to a pulp if I can, the Old Testament is a fundamentally a revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't throw it out. You can't unhitch it. He's a covenant theologian or covenantism versus dispensationalism, and I recognize that they, the covenant theologians hardly ever understand the Old Testament. Don't write me. We all know it's true. Stanley acknowledged that his comments may be considered a little disturbing to some. Yeah. That is God-breathed living word. We, to unhitch yourself from something that God has breathed uh, makes absolutely no sense. He says it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the value systems depicted in the story of ancient Israel. What he's saying there is that people who cannot cannot handle Jewish typology or Jewish writing should never shouldn't have to. While noting that he believes the church needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament, he still says the Jewish scriptures have importance. You, you must be kidding me. They're an important backstory, to quote him again. Well, they're far more than an important backstory. If you were raised on a version of Christianity, and I'm quoting him again, that relies, relies on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia and the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. <sighs> anyway. The church is collapsing. That again, just like... The economies of the, that confederacy. Watch what happens to the church at the end of the age. It will not have Christ in it. It just won't. If you're attending a church that does not have Christ, the true Christ, the, the triune Godhead, Christ, creator God, then that is a church that the Bible says will be vomited out. <sighs> Here we go. Ranting done. 
August 12, 2018, lecture discussion number 33 on the book of Joel. And now I, the, the spinning plates on a stick metaphor, uh, which uh, with regard to my supposed teaching, teaching method is uh, now in full bloom, I should say. And at best, most of my plates on the sticks are wobbling, about to uh, be an exhibition for gravitational phenomena. And maybe I got a few plates that are going okay, but a bunch of plates are going to need all the king's horses and all the king's men if I don't clean it up here. And it would be wise, not be wise, I shouldn't reveal which ones are going to fall, but I know some are and some are obvious, and you know which ones I'm going to have to leave behind because I always have to leave some behind in every lecture series because there just simply isn't enough time to do all of it. And that's the case as always. In any event, as with last week, this Sunday, just like last week, is devoted to reestablishing some momentum to as many of the teetering circular utensils as possible. And again, to repeat, it's acceptable. There's no choice. I have to let some of them be neglected and then hurry about attempting to bring some stability to as many as I can. So this is what I call Weebling. I get as many weebles operational as possible, but casualties are inevitable. I, sh I don't know what to say. People fr are frustrated. You said that you asked this question. You've never answered it. Well, it wasn't a, a weeble. Weebles fall down. Don't believe the advertising. Newton wins. Newton winning is an upcoming Weeble, actually. Uh, I'm going to do a lecture called Newton's Vengeance. You will see it also called sometimes uh, uh, Newton's Revenge, as it applies to Einstein. Uh, I think it's fascinating. So that makes one of us. You can invite your neighbors if you wish for new neighbors. But prepare for that. I think, uh, I think you'll find it. At least interesting. Again, back to your children. Teach your, prepare your children for what's coming. Uh, you can't just let your kids go through this world now and hope that they'll run into somebody who's doctrinally sound. It's not going to happen. So when your child is being destroyed by an academic process, he or she will say, wait a minute. My parents taught me something. They, they prepared me for this. And that's a very valuable thing. Again, advocacy versus policing. At the conclusion of lecture number 32, I squeezed in some questions on the great Sabbath rest. You might remember. And this is, of course, God's language. So, what does great mean to God? Define it. What does he call great? What does rest mean? What does Sabbath mean? Great Sabbath rest. Who is the great Sabbath rest? Because it is about Christ. It's an Old Testament precept that speaks of Christ. And I squeezed in a few questions. And you might remember that Shannon from Texas a few weeks back raised the sign of Jonah and the Ark of Noah with this thing. So I have Jonah, or this topic, 
Jonah and the ark of Noah. Uh, that go along with this discussion. It's very important to know, and this is what Shannon was really quite interested in, is that the ark of Noah came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. And Shannon appropriately so recognized that that's something spectacular. It's in the Old Testament. It has to be about Christ. Sorry, Andy. I'm still mad about it, aren't I? I'll get over it in about another 25 years, yeah. But Shannon wished to investigate this timeline and all of this that is in regard to this. Because he recognized that it pertained to the sign of Jonah and the resting of the Ark of Noah on the 17th day of the seventh month. And those are foundational creation week subjects. Noah is three days and three nights. And that, for example, returns us to the dividing of the light from the darkness. What a day is. The sign of Jonah relies on, is built upon the definition of a day and a night that's established in Genesis 1. The light is divided from the darkness, the day from the night. That is good from evil. The resting of the ark, Genesis 8, 4. (coughs) Excuse me. Again, let me repeat it. On the seventeenth day of the seventh month. And if we're looking at that, resting requires that we go to Genesis 2, because that is the great Sabbath rest. So the fact that this ark rested is taking us back to the resting of God on the seventh day. And Christ rests from his creation on the seventh day. As you know, I don't have to tell you that, that's John 1, 3. Christ is the one who is doing this in Genesis 1. He's identified as the person who creates all things. And he rests from his creating on the seventh day. And Christ is certainly symbolized by the Ark of Noah. There are three arks. I have the Ark of Noah. I have the Ark of Moses. And I have the Ark of the Testimony. Are the covenant. And all three of those are pictures of Christ, both individually and then collectively. Sorry for the handwriting. All three speak of Christ, as you know, Andy. Still mad at Andy. But if I had to pick something out that the Ark of Noah does that's... um, Preeminent, probably the most important. I recognize that the Ark of Noah is covered with atonement blood, kafar, right? That word is used for pitch in Genesis, but it is, it means atonement, blood atonement. It's the only place that it is used as pitch in the Bible. Every place else it is used to mean blood atonement. So the Ark of Noah is covered in blood, has one door. It is in the judgment of the water and everyone is safe. That is a picture of Jesus Christ, clearly. But all of that is important, and as amazing as that is, the fact that it comes to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month, critically important.
to know. The Ark of Noah, the Ark of Noah brings resting to the typology among the other elements. And the point today, yea, a point, the resting of the Ark of Noah will correspond with the great Sabbath rest of creation and also the crucifixion week. I used to do a lecture on how many times God says, I'm finished, and there's four of them. Most people can find three. Being really smarter than everybody else that ever lived, I can find four. Okay, none of that's true. Maybe, a, I don't know, none, none that's true. Therefore, I am saying that the crucifixion week and the creation week have this amazing correlation, which they do. All sevens go back to the first seven. So, that, that also has the attachment to the sign of Jonah, doesn't it? Because Jonah is a crucifixion reference as well as a creation reference. So, you see the sign of Jonah showing up in both the creation week and the uh, um, crucifixion week. And, and hopefully, at least half of that made sense to half of you that heard it. Uh, so that you get the half of it. And yes, that's a math problem. Use your phones. Okay, let's re-enter this subject. I submit that it's of great value. It's in the Old Testament. It's about Christ. It's amazing. It is evidences that are just hardly ever known. So let's read it again, this fantastic account. Thus the heavens and the earth, not just the earth, not just the heavens, the heavens and the earth. What is he saying there? And all the host of them. Who's that? That's the angels, isn't it? We're finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from his all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now we'll argue about what that host means later. Heavens and earth and all of the host. What is he trying to say there? We'll do that next week. For today, let's just focus on this. Note the repeating, finished, ended, work which he had done. All the work. How much of, how much of it is all? It's all of the work that he did in those six days. He rested on the seventh day from all of the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. He blessed that seventh day. What's so obvious? Something should just have smacked you. Bang. Half of you should be unconscious now. Oh, wait a minute. It's already happened. Huh, that was actually pretty funny, you know. I worked really hard on that. Hopefully. Yeah, good. <laughs> What's amazing about the fact that he blessed the seventh day? Let me ask it this way. Did he bless the first day? Why not? 
the second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. He blesses the seventh day. What does blessing mean to him? Define blessing. When God says he's blessing something, what does he mean? Why is he doing it? He blesses the work that he he has done, all of it. And and he rests. In John 1, 3 through 5, all things were made through Christ, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome, did not comprehend the light. Christ is the light of life. He made all things. Nothing was made without him. That is what John 1, 3 through 5 is saying. And John 1, 3, 1, 3 through 5 is a rewording, if you want to think of it that way, of Genesis 1. He is explaining Genesis 1 to you, that Christ is doing this and that he is that light that hits the earth and causes life. He is the light of life. And it's critical, it's crucial that Genesis 1, therefore, is carefully analyzed as what it truly is. It is an explanation of what Jesus Christ is doing and why he's doing it. As all of its elements and the implication of all of those elements are constantly being explained and fulfilled throughout Scripture. Especially at Revelation 20, 21, and 22, the last three chapters of the book. You have the first and you have the last. You have the beginning and the end. You would expect, you read books all the time. You read the first chapter, you skip everything in the middle, and you read the last chapter to find out who did it and why. Are you folk, you go fast forward through your murder mysteries or whatever. I can usually figure out who did the murder within the first eight minutes of every murder mystery show. Because it's always the character that does not fit in the story and has some nondescript little thing that he or she does. That's the one that the fantastic detective figures out was is the murderer. Writers have uh, no imagination anymore. I can prove that to you really easy. What are the biggest movies? They're all computer-generated comic books, right? That I read in the 50s and the 60s. Same thing for television shows. I heard a joke the other day that made me laugh. They should have, they're having a new Oscar now for the most popular. You're going to get an Oscar for the most popular movie because nobody watches the garbage that is, wins the Oscar. So now they're going to make up some, maybe you'll watch that three hour hate filled nonsense every year. I'm not in a good mood today, eh, any time? Get that man some chicken, she said. Absolutely right. <laughs> anyway, the, the the joke was is that they should have a movie for the best or an Oscar. I'm sorry for the best sequel. And I thought that was quite clever. And nobody can write anything new. We can only regurgitate over and over and over again and make money. <sighs> okay. But you should expect the first and the last, right? The beginning and the end. 
The beginning is the cause of the end. I hope that makes sense. The end is the resolution of the beginning. So the beginning presents what? It presents a situation, if you will, something to be solved. And the end solves it, shows it solved. So what is the crisis in Genesis 1? Or why is Christ doing this, becomes the question. Is he bored or is he solving something? That's really not correct. Is he creative or is he solving? Is he creatively solving? The beginning is the cause of the end or the cause and effect as we should expect. That's what the Bible is doing. The creation is everywhere in the Bible. Okay, why does the omnipotent, which means all-powerful God, rest? From what is he resting? I asked it last week. I'm going to keep asking it bunches of times to make you wrestle with it. What is the connection between Genesis 2.1 and John 19.30? That is twice. God says he is finished. Let me read it to you. God ended his, on, we're finished, and on the seventh day, God ended his work. He rested his work, which he had done, done and finished. He rested from his work, which God had created and made. What's his work? Why does he call it work? What is the connection between Genesis 2, 1 and 3, through 3 and John 19.30? John 19.30 is the sixth saying of the seven sayings on the cross where Christ says it is done. He is saying his work is done. What work is he doing there? Is it the same work as creation? The redemptive work is finished, he says on the cross. The obvious question is, what is, then is the correlation between the two finishes? The ended work of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and the ending of the work of John 19, 30. Christ rests from his work at Genesis 2, 3. Does Christ rest from his work at John 19, 30? Would he follow the same pattern? It's his pattern. Does he know his pattern? So, well, I won't follow it here. I'll follow it here a little bit, maybe. Or do you think he is consistent? Does his omniscience... Make him consistent. Does Christ bless the seventh day of the crucifixion week? He blesses the seventh day of the creation week. And that's him doing it. John 1. Does he bless the seventh day of the crucifixion week? Keep in mind, those of you who have studied uh, the subjects of the sevens, the Bible identifies seven 1,000-year periods. It's called the week of millenniums, or the seven millenniums. The seventh millennium is the messianic millennium. That's the one we all know. That's the final 1,000-year period. And that would seem to correspond, well, I'll just say it does, it corresponds to the great Sabbath rest, the first seven. All sevens become... The first seven. So how do they interrelate? How do they intersect? What about the millennium brings this aspect of resting? Is Christ resting in the millennium? 
To rephrase that a bit, Christ is physically on earth. He is ruling as king from Jerusalem. This is creator God himself, the I am, the ancient of days, the word made flesh. He is governing in a manifested way in the Sabbath millennium. How is that resting? What's your first guess? I have time. I went really fast, even with my ranting. I'll give you a little bit of a hint. Who's not participating? Christ is ruling. What happened to the ruler? Because Christ supplants, if you will, the ruler. Who's the ruler? Who is the prince of this earth? What happens to him? He's bound for the entire millennium, isn't he? Till the very end. How is that resting? If Satan being bound has significance to the millennium, does Satan, is Satan involved in the creation week? Or if you want to prefer it this way, what is God's definition of resting? And again, back to Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark came to a rest on a mountain. Christ, obviously, will come to a mountain, a Mount of Olives. He will rule from the mountain that is the city of Jerusalem in the millennium. The final temple will be on a mountain, the only mountain as a... No, I didn't say it, but it was right there. It's the only mountain. Are thoughts sinful? Of course they are. So if I think, by the way, then that must mean that I should mark it down, right? Absolutely right. (laughs) Noah's Ark comes to a stop. Trying to reach a definition that accomplishes all the evidences that I'm giving you. Uh, The definition of rest. What does rest mean when God says rest? Does he take a nap? I have so many times Christ is asleep on the boat, right? And the disciples are so sure that he's unconscious. Can God be unconscious? And most of the Christians go, well, he's passed out. He probably had too much to drink. Oh, God over there makes good wine. Probably had some. Now he's asleep on the boat. And everybody's panicking. Oh, sorry. Uh, if you have any questions about... Uh, I shouldn't do this, but I will. Have any questions about Christ being asleep, call Andy Stanley. He'll clear it right up for you. I imagine he's got a large church. I have come to the conclusion that mega churches are filled to the brim with nothings. There's something wrong with the megachurch process. These megachurches are messes in every aspect. Something wrong with them. If they're the Laodicean church, they are in great trouble, and I suspect that many of them are. Obviously, we're going to need to reach a definition that accomplishes everything that God talks about with respect to resting. Again, Noah's Ark comes to a stop 
And I want you to place yourself now into the positions of the occupants. A little thought experiment. How smooth of a ride do you suppose the Ark of Noah provided for these folks and those animals? Was that a nice little drift down a mellow river somewhere? No, that was probably unbelievable, isn't it? I've been in some rough seas, big waves, small boat. By small, I mean an 80-footer. But it's no match for 10 to 15-foot swells. And I've been in the middle of that. And some people call that halibut fishing. They think it's fun. We. Others will remember it as non-stop projectile vomiting. As is normally the case. I don't care how much drama mean you got or whatever you think you're doing. When that sea is doing that stuff, everybody is a wreck. The point is, yay, another point, the Ark of Noah was likely buffeted about in a way we have no comprehension, especially at the beginning of its of the voyage term. And perhaps the waters calmed somewhat, and they probably did. After the initial period of unimaginable turmoil, they probably calmed down. When the waters were at its peak, what has stopped? Think about that. Now, the waters begin to ebb away, and then the ark comes to a rest. I want you to think how it felt to those safe inside the ark, covered by the atonement blood. When it stopped, finally stopped, the ark stopped. says it rested, right? Came to rest. Rest means stop in this case. Stops moving. There remained more time before they could disembark. Eventually, God orders them out. Why did he order them out? You've been in a boat vomiting for a long time, surrounded by animals who are also vomiting and doing other things. And you have to be ordered out of that. Does that make you wonder? He has to throw them out of the boat. Why? Interesting question, I think. Will I answer it today? No. Next week, it's right here. I'll answer it next week. But you'll answer it now because you've already figured it out. I am convinced. So, he orders them out. And then Noah builds an altar and he offers every clean animal and every clean bird. One of each. Sorry, I said that badly. He offers one of every clean animal and every clean bird on his altar. And the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Remember that the ground is cursed for your benefit, my benefit. He said, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the intent of man's heart is evil. That's a mysterious verse, difficult to decipher. Much is demanded to understand correctly Genesis 8.21. And we will need to return to Genesis 8.21 and Genesis 9.11 and 12. Just more spinning plates now that I have. I am ever so slowly making the case that rest carries with it. I hope you can see it. I know you can. I'm pounding away. It carries with it stopping, finishing, ending. And certainly we can eliminate fatigue or weariness or tiredness. He's not tired because he did all this stuff in six days. It didn't exhaust him. He's not going, gosh, i got to have some Kentucky Fried Chicken in order to do the windows. Not doing that. That's an inside joke for only me and one other person. Tiredness, weariness, fatigue, 
is not compatible with omnipotence. Place no human frailties on Jesus Christ. Stop it. It's kind of a joke. Right? I'll help you laugh. Oh, I didn't write stop anywhere. Doggone it. Joke failed. Don't laugh. It's embarrassing to both of us. <laughs> okay. The immediate question then comes to the surface. What did Christ end at Genesis 1-2 to Genesis 2-3? Because from 1-2 to 2-3, we have, a, we have those six days of creation and he ends something. What does he end? He rests and stops on the seventh day and then he blesses it. And into this now add the watchers, the angelic realm, Job 38-7. What are they thinking? They're watching all of this. What are they thinking? What's their perspective? They're the only witnesses to it. Until Adam is made, they can communicate to a very high level. They're watching it. The world is in absolute, utter darkness. Not one photon of light. And it is covered in water. In other words, water is in dominance over the earth. And the earth is without form and void. If you keep repeating the most obvious questions, why is the earth like this? Did God want to start his process with the earth in utter darkness covered in water? Can't even see it. What does without form mean? What does chaos mean? What is it void of? It's formless and void. Chaos and void. But next comes six days of unimaginable, incredible creation. Think of the angels, what they are watching. Six days and six nights, or six nights and six days. We'll get into that discussion uh, eventually. Consider, if you will, the angelic committee meetings. What I did last week was say they had the nights off to talk about. Do they sleep? Do angels sleep? Got beds and alarm clocks. What do you think? They would logically confer, wouldn't they? They would ask, what is Creator God doing and why is He doing this? How long will He create? If God goes on for six days, what would they think He's going to do? It does go on for six days and then God stops. Blesses the next day. How long did it take him to bless the next day? What did he say in his blessing? What did the angels think when God stopped ultimately is the question. Did they anticipate that he would stop? Did they, did they have a bunch of angels going along saying, I'll take the seventh day. I think he'll go seven days. And another angel, I got 50 bucks that he stops after three days. How, what were they doing? Did they have any understanding of how long the creative process would go? For me, it's paradox, right? This is the only place in all of creation, this earth, that there is life. You have to be able to explain why that is to your children. The angels witness an explosion of life, of living beings, an organic environment specifically designed for those living beings. And those living beings are not something. What are they not? 
All of this creation is not something. They're not angels. And the angels would notice they're not angels. I see a whole bunch of creation. None of them are angels. They're living beings. They're eternal souls. But they're not angels, as opposed to Ezekiel 28, 13 through 19. An Eden that is purposed for the anointed cherub, the fiery Eden, the mineral Eden. This earth is not like that at all. It's organic, and it's necessary, in my opinion, to harmonize Ezekiel 28, 13 through 19 with Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Something that we've discussed in the past, and that's the fall of Satan timeline issue. Clearly, apparently, essentially, and yes, obviously, the angels would have noticed the speciality of the organic Eden, the physical nature of it. This is not a habitat for the angelic host. They're not going to live there. God's building something, making something, and the angels aren't there. Now, they wouldn't be arguing or debating that. They'd figure that really fast. The debate does not arise, in my view, due to the overwhelming attestation to the contrary. There's nothing here for the angels. The angels are excluded. They are not partakers of this system and this ecology. Obvious question. Why not? What are they thinking when they recognize they're not involved here? I submit that there is a complement, an occurrence in Scripture, which bears enough similarity to be worth evaluating it along with this, and I'll do that in a few minutes. It's on page, let me see. Where is it? Oh, my goodness. It's supposed to be here. It's on page 15. So that's within a couple hours. <laughs> I've told the story that I made that joke a few times and I had a guy get up and leave. Poof. <laughs> I still laugh about that a lot. And I repeat the joke, hoping it'll happen again. Dang it. God stops after six days. Did anyone have any idea that he intended to stop after six days? Not only does he stop, he blesses the seventh day. And that's the third blessing. First blessing happens in Genesis 1.22. He blesses the great living souls in the sea. And then Genesis 1.28. And then this blessing of the seventh day, Genesis 2.3. The first blessing is be fruitful and multiply, as is the second blessing. Man is made in the likeness of God, the image of God. What does that mean? You've got to figure that out. Does he? If I have a picture of God and a picture of man, do they look the same? Oh, hey, that's obviously God. He looks like that guy. How much does Adam look like God? And the angels look at Adam they go, wow, God made a little mini-me. Is that what happened? Man is made in the likeness and image of God, given authority over every living soul that moves, it says. Notice the movement part. Yay, we can get back into motion and the divisibility of it. Living things move. Those first two blessings are spoken aloud. I think it's safe to conclude that so also was the third blessing. I think the blessing of the seventh day was spoken aloud. How loud did he bless? What does blessing mean to God? Not to you. Get rid of you. You are not involved in the Bible. The Bible is about God. You have a very 
periphery little role to play, which is to be saved. But that's about it. People say, well, I can't find anything in the Bible that relates to me. Well, yeah, duh. Good. Get a self-help book. I wonder who would have a self-help kind of lecture. Priceless vomit. Never mind. He might think I'm mad at him. Which, that would be true. When God blesses the seventh day, what is he saying in his blessing? You're going to shut the door before we get robbed again? Who saw, who heard what he said about man? Man is in the image, the likeness of God. Who heard that? This also spoken aloud. And again, how loud? Did he say that for Adam? No, did he hold up a mirror and say, hey, Adam, you look just like me. Look here. The mass suggests otherwise. How many millions, if not billions, of angels do I have? Millions or billions. So far, I got how many men? So who did he say it for? What do we have to this point? Got to hurry now. The angelic host witnessed the creation that does not involve them. They're just clapping on the sidelines. They didn't do anything. They're sitting there watching it. Some are not clapping, if I'm right about the timeline. Darkness, the evil, is not eliminated, but it is divided. It is separated from the light of life. But the darkness is allowed to remain. That's a key point. The waters also are divided. Dry land appears. Soil. Plants for food are brought forth. Food. Is that a new concept? Get to that in a minute. Living souls are created. That's not new. But they don't look like angels. And the environment that they're in is not compatible with angelic characteristics. And they are given every green herb for food. So food comes forth and food is now being incorporated in the creation. Why food? This food concept, this food structure, does that have an accompanying or correlative uh, angelic system or process. Does that make sense? I hope it did. I barely could say it. More, more medicine. Do angels eat? How about that? Note Genesis 18, 5 through 8. Apparently they can eat. Abraham made them food. Jesus is himself ate there in Genesis and at the Passover. So that's not the question. The question is, is do you need to eat? Yes, you do. If you don't eat, what happens to you? You get angry. That's right. (laughs) Exactly what happens. (laughs) So the the question really is, (laughs) you've got to come all the time. You really do. (laughs) Your, your, Your father seems to think you do this to him. Is it exactly like this? 
Yeah, you have to pay. You have to be a little bit more. What's that word we want? Respectful there, don't you? You can't be yourself. <laughs> so you're pretending in one environment and not the other. This one's a lot more fun. I tell you what. Of course it is. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Do angels need to eat? That's the question, right? We need to eat. They don't need to eat. All living souls created from Genesis 1, 20 through 31 have these dependencies. We must eat. We must breathe. We have to drink. We have to rest or we will physically die. And that is true today. All of those things are the case. Is it true for angels? If the angel doesn't have a pizza, does he die? They can eat. Must they eat? Why this dependency for us and animals, but is it there for the angelic realm? Is dependency part of this new creative structure? Why the difference, assuming angels have no such conditional requirement? Anyway, let's back up to the blessing of the seventh day. God ends his work. He blesses the seventh day. He sets apart the seventh day. The seventh day is the most important day. He sets it apart. He lifts it up, if you want to think of it that way. It's given status above all the previous six days. Why? He sets it aside. Now, compare to the crucifixion seven days, which... Which of those is the day of rest? Well, obviously it's the seventh day. What happened to the seventh day, the weekly Sabbath of the crucifixion week? Because Christ doesn't say he's done on that day. He says that on the fourth day. So I have his redemptive work and then I have something else that must be done if this corresponds and it does to the creation week. Allow me to really speed up now a bit. The weekly Sabbath that followed the crucifixion. Not the high Sabbaths. I have two, three Sabbaths in that week. I have the Passover, unleavened bread, and the Saturday weekly Sabbath. And everyone is confused by that, especially Andy. They don't know there's three Sabbaths there, so they can't understand what the Bible was saying when it says after the Sabbaths. They don't know that there's that's the unleavened bread Passover, those two Sabbaths, those two feast days. The weekly Sabbath happened to be, here's something that's a newsflash, the weekly Sabbath of the crucifixion happened to be the 17th day of the seventh month. Who'd have thought? And Christ declares it is finished, done on the fourth day. Noah's ark rested on the 17th day of the seventh month. Therefore, Jesus Christ, who is the ark of Noah, he is the ark, right? The ark. Not Noah's ark, the ark of God. He rested, stopped on the 17th day of the seventh month. Now, back to the original question. Stop from what? What does 1 Peter 3.18 have to do? This is for the Internet people. So then they go look that up. Christ does something there. To who? Who does he interact with there? Man? No. Angels. Where are they? Who are they? Why are they there? What have they done? All of this ultimately returns to the woman in Satan, Genesis 3. The woman testified that Satan lied to her and that she believed the lie, which takes us to John 11:23. Got to do it. Can't leave it out. So I'll read it really, really fast, I hope. John 11:23. What's that? It's Lazarus. Yes, we're going to talk about those grave clothes eventually. Probably not today. Hopefully next week. 
Ah, here's what Jesus says there. I'll start at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe me? It says this, I changed it. Not that it needed change, and it doesn't. Because Eve did not believe. The woman, Eve, testified that Satan lied to her and that she believed the lie. I also go to 1140. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Who's the glory of God? Christ is the glory of God. She couldn't see the glory of God. Evidence is she didn't believe him. A relationship between Eve and Martha. Verse 25, there's three believes in that verse. That's not an accident. God knows what he's doing. Duh. Satan's lie to the angels, Ezekiel 28:16, was about existence. You know, I hope I've covered that enough that you know. Has God given you? Has he given me? Has he given us? Has he given the great creatures, the living souls? Has he given them life, existence or not? Yes or no? He says, I gave you life in John 11, 25. I gave you life. Satan said, no, he didn't give you life. It's an illusion. And Satan lied and said, no, existence, as you all know, requires free will because otherwise it's merely robotic and automation is not existence. It's not life. Christ declares emphatically, screams it, that he's life, that he gives life. Do you believe him? Yes or no? And if you believe Christ, you will see the glory of God because Christ is the glory of God. He is the light of life. And what did the angels think when creation... I'm sorry, what did the angels think the creation was for? What's the reason that they think the creation was done? What did they expect? What was it that God stopped? I always ask it this way, I have for many years. What if he put the lake of fire in his, on the seventh day? I don't think he did. I think he put it in Genesis 3, 15, as you know. But what if he put the lake of fire there? Let's just grant me the hypothesis. He creates the heavens and the earth, and then he creates the lake of fire. What would the angels be thinking there? They're not part of this creation. Oops, there's a lake of fire. What's our problem? Did they think they were being replaced? Did Adam replace them? Certainly replaced Satan, didn't he? He's the new king of Eden. God stopped and blessed his stopping. That's a big clue right there. The biggest clue on the whole board is that he blessed his stopping. So he thought his stopping was a really good idea, didn't he? It was a powerful statement. He's saying something powerful. Who's he saying it to? Noah's ark stopped. The waters ebbed away. Noah built an altar. And God blessed Noah. And says to him the same thing he says to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Another blessing. That is a big, big clue. God stopped the waters from killing. Didn't he? They stopped. 
and kill anything on the ark. And he stopped the ark. And God on the cross ended something. He says he ended it. It is finished. He proved something, Matthew 4. He showed the solution. He revealed the answer. Who did he reveal it to primarily? Did man get it? Has man got it yet? I'm so tempted to lift this up again. I won't do it. Does man got it now? Hardly ever. Who knows the answers? Whom is primarily shown the solution? Did mankind understand? Maybe a few. How is the millennial kingdom a time of rest? Finally, for today, everyone loves the word finally. Moses, Exodus 32, 7 through 9. Exodus 32, 30 through 32. Israel has sinned grievously, corrupted themselves. And this is an astonishing, dramatic theodicy. If you don't know what that means, see me later. It means that God is going to demonstrate how the triune Godhead operates, and he will reveal it using Moses. And Moses displays Deuteronomy 18.15 here. He is in the position of the love and mercy of the triune Godhead, just as Abraham is in Genesis 18. And he's opposing, therefore, the holiness and justice of God, if you want to think of it that way. They can't be in opposition. They are triune and one. But if a human perspective, think of them like this. Two omnipotent forces. The burning lamp of Genesis 15. That's the light of life. And the smoking furnace is the lake of fire. And solution seems impossible. And Moses prays that the solution be what? What does he pray? He says, make the solution me. The solution is not to destroy, consume Israel. The solution is to blot me out. That's what Moses says. And forgive Israel. It's incredible. Blot me out so that Israel can be saved, forgiven. And God is teaching us about himself with those events. True, literal events that actually happen. And inside them are these incredible pictures of Christ and the triune nature of God. If God has not given real life, which has existence and freedom in it, then the prayer of Moses is meaningless. If Moses is a robot. That prayer is dumb. God would erase the corrupted, Genesis 32.10, and just start over. But he doesn't. And therefore, the lie of Satan is defeated. Next week, we will clean up the plates off the floor.